0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm David Kern and I quickly wanted to say a word of thanks to some of our friends who are making this show possible. Our friends over at the CLT, the Classic Learning Test, are doing an amazing work. They are a classically-based alternative to the SAT and the ACT, and it's the fastest-growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of them even endorse the CLT as their preferred admissions test. That's even more than the SAT and the ACT. Students who take the test can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more, or to find out how to take a test, you can head over to cltexam.com. Dot com. Again, to register for the CLT, you head over to cltexam.com. So again, thanks so much to our friends over at the Classic Learning Test for sponsoring the Cersei Institute Podcast Network this month. It's because of them and partners like them that this network is possible. And with that, enjoy your show. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi again, and welcome to Ask Andrew, which is ask Andrew and Karen this time again. Third time in a row. Makes me happy. It's good to have you with me. Thank you. Got anything you want to say? No. Nope. No. Okay. <laughs> well, all right then. As you can tell Karen is the talkative one between us. So the the question last time was what is the classical curriculum? And I argued that the curriculum is not the books that you read and it's not the subjects that you study. Instead, It's the arts that you learn, the seven liberating arts of truth, perception, and harmony. And those arts enable you to discover truth or knowledge of truth, which is divided into basically four sciences that are pyramidal. There are foundational sciences and higher sciences. The physical sciences are actually the lowest level of science. They're predictable and numerical for the most part and then there, and, and testable. Then there is the moral sciences, in which degrees of certainty are much less precise, and you can't determine what the economy, for example, is going to do in seven years, the way you can determine what a spaceship is going to do in seven years. Then there are the um, philosophical or moral, um, metaphysical sciences, which is the tough stuff, and then the theological sciences, which is the impossible stuff. We need revelation for that. So... The question for today, then, is what is Christian classical pedagogy? In other words, how do you teach in the Christian classical way? Now, I'm going to propose that basically there's two ways to teach, but I think there might only be one. And this is important because in modern Um, approaches to learning. We focus so much on breaking things down and cutting them up and identifying differences that we've found about 4,000 methods of teaching. And my contention is that there's really only one, that the mind only learns in one way with this qualification. Sometimes it learns in that one way the wrong thing, okay? So then you need a second method. But let me... Let me see if we can illustrate this for you. Let me talk with Karen a little bit about this. Karen, I want to ask you some, some questions from things that we've talked about over the years and see if you've ever learned anything from me. Can I do that? You can try. Okay. <laughs> when you hear the word logos, what do you think of? What does that mean?
2: A logos is the idea of something.
1: Oh, I can see that. Okay. Can you give me an example? That was a setup. I didn't, it was a setup. I didn't warn her at all about that part. <laughs> uh, I think what you're doing is thinking too hard. If if the logos is an idea of something, then everything has a logos. And the trick is, if I hold up right now, I just picked up a highlighter. Okay, what's, what's the idea behind this highlighter?
2: You're writing utensil.
1: Well, that's its purpose. Okay, no, that's right. It's, it's a writing utensil distinct from others because it highlights. Yeah, that's good. That's its logos. You could say it's its definition, but it's more than that. It's the idea behind it, the idea in it, you could even say. It's a hard concept to grasp, and therefore the modern educator has more or less tossed it aside. Okay, but another question. What does it mean to embody a logos?
2: To embody means to put flesh and blood on an idea.
1: You mean flesh and blood literally, or you mean that sort of metaphorically?
2: Well, metaphorically, although if you're talking about a story, it can, an idea can be embodied in a character.
1: Oh, that's good.
2: So, in your imagination, that really does have a body.
1: Huh. But it's in your mind. Ma- I love that. Okay. So, when I picked up the highlighter, there's no flesh and blood there. So, what, what do you just mean it's made physical?
2: Yes, that could be.
1: Okay, or, or imaginatively physical. Okay. So are you saying a story has a logos? It should. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'll go with that. Okay, so a logos is an idea, and to embody that idea, you can use a physical object like a highlighter, or you can use a story. I like this. Okay. How about a type? We've talked about the word type from time to time, I think. Okay,
2: a type... Is an example of something or an illustration of something. So it's like the relationship between two things.
1: Oh, be careful. I'm not sure if I understand that last bit. I like the words example and I like the word example. Okay, and maybe things
2: is the wrong word. Okay, so you know how we say Joseph is a type of Christ? Yes. Because he has some of the same characteristics and he points to. Joseph nice. points to Christ. Nice. So a type is something that points.
1: If we look at Joseph, we can see Christ. Yes. If we if we look at the Old Testament sacrifices, we can see Christ. Okay. Let me let me go with that. When I was about ninth grade, I was a leader at Awana. A lot of you probably are familiar with Awana, and this is boy, I was fourteen, so this is about nineteen forty. I was I was. Um, I was with a group of, I think, third graders. And they have what they call tribe time. And And a kid said to me, his memory work, he said, um, Behold the Lamb of God. And I don't remember if he said, Who takes away the sin of the world. I think his whole verse, because he was a little kid, was, Behold the Lamb of God. So I asked this child, Why do you think John the Baptist said... Behold the Lamb of God. Why do you think he referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God? And he gave me the most unforgettable answer, (laughs) one of the most unforgettable answers I've ever got. Cute little kid, you know, bush brush cut, uh, what do you call it, crew cut? I forget what those are called now. Anyway, short hair, ears sticking out a bit like kids do with the big eyes, and he says, because he thought he was cute. So he thought, that Jesus was the Lamb of God because lambs are cute. And I've thought about that a million times because, for one thing, you just talked about how Joseph is a type of Christ. A lamb being sacrificed is also a type of Christ. But a lamb being sacrificed, when you think of a lamb being sacrificed, do you think, oh, how cute? No. It's bloody and gross, isn't it? So then I ask, well, why did this child say... He thought he was cute. Why did that child think that lambs are cute?
2: Because what he knows of lambs, knew of lambs was their cuteness. That was the identifying quality for him. How uh, do you uh, think he got? That back? was: Well, from his stuffed animals, or from the little pictures of or maybe because you see the pictures of, of Jesus with a lamb. On his shoulders, representing a child, and so, if he 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 obviously hasn't lived on a farm, so his, (laughs) you know, he thinks of lambs as cute, and and that image, to him, is beautiful, and so he could apply that to Jesus.
1: Now here's a question: Was he right? Are lambs cute?
2: Yeah, lambs are cute. You think? I think lambs are cute. Oh, you're
1: allowed. Okay.
2: We should have a lamb.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll have a pet lamb, <laughs> and then we'll take care. But Karen, we wouldn't Karen, eat it. Karen we wouldn't eat it. Lamb, <laughs> lamb. Okay. So, so, so a lamb can be cute, sure, but that's not the point that John's making, is it? Now, did the disciples when when John the Baptist said, "Behold, the Lamb of God," did the disciples think, "Oh, yeah, that guy's really cute"? No. No, that's not what they would have thought. What would they have been thinking?
2: Sacrifice.
1: Sacrifice. They would have understood. That he is a sacrifice. Why? Why did they come to think that?
2: Because they, they were familiar with what happens in the, in the temple.
1: They were familiar with it. That's right. They had seen every morning and every night while they were in Jerusalem. And notice that Jesus is in Jerusalem a lot. And he spends a lot of time in the temple when he's there. And every morning and every night in the temple, they sacrifice lambs every single day, type after type, specific instance after specific instance, so that after all those sacrifices, they knew that a lamb was a sacrifice to God, a sin sacrifice, in fact. And when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God, there was no question in their mind what he meant. Now, what's interesting to me is that in both of those cases— the child and the disciples. No explanation was given by the teacher. All they had to work with was types. And I would suggest to you that that is the pattern by which human beings learn everything. Literally, without exception, everything. We learn, and the things that we learn are logoses. Logoi, right? So, so logos is a unifying principle it's an idea it can mean reason it's got a, it's just as big an idea as the english word except even bigger um but it contains all of that but if we're going as human beings to perceive an idea we're not going to see it like angels do by direct intellectual perception we're going to see it with flesh and blood we're going to see it with our senses and when we see a number of examples of it then we're going to come to understand it having done that we can then think analytically about what we now know but i would be prepared to contend that there's nothing that we come to understand without first seeing it embodied and when we get to higher levels of of understanding morals for example we can see morals we know morals we're born knowing morals but we can see them enacted in behavior but one of the most helpful ways to teach morals is through stories. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So tell me a story.
2: Okay, so I'm going to tell you this, a story from Little House in the Big Woods. Uh, Laura and Mary have a cousin named Charlie, and one day Charlie and his father come over to work in the Ingalls field, and I think they're cutting hay and putting it into... They didn't call them bales, but like stocks. And so Charlie is supposed to be helping. He's supposed to be bringing them water. He's maybe supposed to be picking up rocks. But he's he's some distance away from Pa and his father, and and he wants some attention. He doesn't like being out there all himself. So he starts screaming, and the adults come running and find out that there's nothing wrong with Charlie, and they go they scold him and they go back to their work. And a few minutes later, of course, he does it again and he starts screaming saying there's a snake or something they come running there's nothing he just wanted some attention hmm. again he gets scolded and he's told to go back to his work and they go back to their work and of course the third time he starts screaming and screaming and screaming and they don't come and they're not they're not in any rush to get to him and it turns out that he has stepped onto a a um wasp nest on the ground and he's covered covered in wasp stings, and his his body is beginning to swell up, and when they get to him, and they take him home, and of course his mother and uh, Laura's mother are are attentive to him, and they wrap him in mud. They have to make mud, and they put it all over his body, and they wrap him in these long white claws, and there he is, wrapped up like a mummy, miserable. And um, he has, and Laura and Mary and their, and his, his, her mom and pa have a discussion about how he got what he deserved, and then, um, one of the girls says, "But he didn't even say a lie. He didn't say anything. Hmm. And then the discussion is, "Well, can you lie without speaking?" Hmm. was he He was just screaming, and sometimes you can lie by not saying the truth, and sometimes you can lie when you when you imply something that is not true. And that's the story of Charlie and the bees.
1: You know what, I love that story because because he lied. By giving types, right? You've got what they had, what the people listening to him scream had was three examples, three types of him screaming. And learning from the first two types, they learned that when he screams, nothing's happening. But it turned out that they learned a falsehood and he paid the price for it. So that's, that's superb. Now, compare the story that you just told to the story that I was telling about the kid and the lamb. The learning experience of the child learning about a lamb being cute, the disciples learning that a lamb is a sacrifice, and, and Charlie's relatives learning that he's a liar. What happened the same every time?
2: Information was communicated.
1: How? Uh,
2: with Charlie. No, you-
1: what was the same?
2: What was, oh, it was the same? Each
1: How was the information communicated in all three stories? It comes to the question they asked about whether he was lying. How did he communicate the information?
2: By uh, screaming.
1: By screaming, right? By doing something physical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How was the information communicated about the Lamb of God being a sacrifice?
2: It was it was experienced
1: by sacrifices, right?
2: It Was watched. It was seen. And how
1: was the information communicated about the lamb being cute? The
2: boy gave his opinion.
1: Well, we assume it was because he saw cute lambs. It seems like a safe assumption. And now, what I'm getting at here is this: that the way human beings learn is when we see a logos incarnated. This is why, and th- it's how 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 far can you go with this? This is what Jesus said, I am the truth. Okay. And when he said that, I don't think he meant I am the collection of all true information. Maybe in some mystical way he did, but I don't think that's what he meant. What he does seem to mean to me, at least is this, that the very form of truth, he is the form of truth. And what is truth? It's the incarnate word. It's word incarnate. The idea is embodied. And we can imitate him in his person when we teach. And when we do that, it is the most amazingly effective way to teach ever. Now, look at how he taught. He wants to make a point. He doesn't give lectures very often, does he? Sometimes he gives um, sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the time, he tells parables because he's embodying the truth. The whole Bible is full of Embodied truth, as though that's a pattern that God has laid out for us to imitate. And what I'm contending is, that's how we learn regardless. Now, you don't have to teach that way, but that's the only way your child is going to learn. That's why, for example, in the last session, we talked about the setting that the child lives in. the, The home, right? Where he lives communicates to him... Vast quantities, the the pictures on the wall communicate vast quantities of information that we might never even think of as parents. But we need to. We need to think about that. What are the proportions? What are the forms? What are the relationships between things? Those are incarnate words. Now, we sometimes don't think through what is the word we're incarnating. But we need to, because we are always incarnating some word. Well, once again... We've gone way over because I'm supposed to for those of you who wonder, I'm supposed to do these in 12 minutes, and I haven't been. So I hope you'll forgive me. That means I need to wrap this up. Karen, thank you for helping me with that You're because welcome. I don't know if you realize this, but you just illustrated. You just gave types of how to teach this way. Now, we at Circe, we call this mimetic teaching, in which you incarnate a word. And you and we just actually gave an incarnation of the word of this is my medic teaching why we just took you as listeners we we presented types to you, I compared those types with each other, and then Karen expressed the idea, or I guess I am now expressed the idea of when you teach you incarnate the word so that's my medic teaching. If you want to learn more about that, we have a lot on it at, at on the Circe website, but a lot of people do. Um, it's not always called medic teaching by everybody, but it's just the idea of, t- if you want, huh. the trivial way to put it is show, don't tell. Um, now, I'll just add this finally that there is something that needs to be done when a student misunderstands as my third grade child did. You can, you can yell at them and, and beat them for getting it wrong, but a more appropriate thing to do is to recognize that if they've drawn a wrong conclusion... It's usually because the types pointed them to that wrong conclusion. So go back and give them more types. That's where Socratic teaching comes in. Socratic teaching has two stages to it. It's used when a student goes wrong. The first stage is when you ask questions to show them the discord in their thinking, and you keep asking until they say, oh yeah, I'm wrong, I don't know, there's a discord in my thinking. And then you have a second stage where you correct or heal that discord by leading them to harmony through questions. And because they have in their soul the order of truth and the law of God, it works. It's an amazing thing. So with that, having been way too brief on Socratic teaching and having been, I don't know, I hope it was interesting at least, but still far too brief even on mimetic teaching, let me wrap it up by saying there are two modes of teaching— in, in the classical tradition that, that contain every other mode. One is mimetic and one is Socratic. In mimetic, you incarnate a word, you incarnate a logos until the student can see it. You guide them by asking them to compare the types. In Socratic teaching, when they have a discord in their minds, you help them see that discord or inconsistency gently. When they admit it's there, you then lead them on the path toward whole-mindedness. That's why math is so important. All right. Way too long, forgive me, but thanks, Karen. You're welcome. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?